The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. Okay, so this morning is our final week in our message series that is dedicated to helping people work on struggling relationships while also strengthening healthy relationships. And our timing in the series has been strategic. It is during the holidays that families get together more and office people have office parties and friends gather to celebrate. And those gatherings can either be really good or they can be really awkward based on the state of the relationships of those that are involved. Whenever there's relationships that are strained or the relationships that are broken, those gatherings are anything but joyous. So instead of us just kind of making do in the holidays, how can we maybe make some things right? So week number one, we talked about forgiveness. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. It's one of the most universal statements in your Bible on the subject of forgiveness. Who should you forgive? Anyone. What should you forgive? Anything. When should you forgive? Anytime you pray. So the key truth for week number one was an unforgiving spirit reveals an unrepentant heart. Week two was about confrontation. When someone has strayed from the truth or if they're acting foolishly, should you say anything to them? Or when someone is living in sin, either knowingly or unknowingly, should you confront them? If you know somebody has something against you, what is your next response as a believer? We recognize that healthy relationships require strong communication. And whenever you can't say certain things or you have to tiptoe around certain topics or there's not the opportunity to speak truth and love, that relationship suffers and many times it severs completely. So our key truth from last week was confrontation may be necessary to reestablish unity, to encourage wisdom, and to address sin. Now, in addition to the text that I gave about those three specific categories, there's also general teachings in the Bible about our speech, our heart, our mindset, our attitude, and our goal in all conversational matters, not just the confrontational ones. Last week, we focused on what we confront. This week, we focus on how are we to confront it. So I invite you once again, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 5. Matthew, chapter number 5. I'm finishing the series by speaking on reconciliation. Our primary text for this morning is actually one of our primary texts from this last week. We're answering the questions, what is reconciliation and how does it happen? Now, as you're finding your place in the text, let me just say, if there's one question that came back to me multiple times after last week's message, it was, what do you do if the other person is not a Christian? What do you do in that situation? Because I presented three different scenarios in which one believer addresses another believer. Well, the answer to that question is actually found in the general teachings that we're going to address today. Here's what I can tell you about those general teachings. They are not specific to the spiritual state of the one being addressed, but they are really specific to the spiritual state of the one doing the addressing. That would be you and I. 
In other words, it doesn't matter whether or not somebody else is a believer, not a believer, if they're an atheist, an agnostic, it doesn't really matter. The issue is how will we respond and how will we talk to them? So let's read the text, pray, and jump into things from there. So verse 23 says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your spirit to guide us in the truth. And God, as people hear the truths of this message, I know we will frame those truths in light of hurting relationships maybe in our life. God, help us to frame things well this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In this particular portion of Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking on the importance of unity and how disunity disrupts our worship. Anger in our heart removes integrity in our worship. Jesus captured this thought while addressing a problem of the first century that is also a massive problem of the 21st century. And that is we tend to focus on those big outward sins and we don't want to talk about or really focus on those inward hidden heart sins. So in this, we would see all of these sequences in this particular text. That is, he talks about murder. Most people would agree murder is always wrong. You don't have to be a Christian or not a Christian. Murder is wrong. However, we're not nearly as concerned about anger. Also, adultery is widely accepted as being wrong. And yet, I've even heard Christians joke around saying, it's okay to look as long as you don't touch. In other words, it's all right to have lust in your eyes and lust in your heart as long as you don't act upon that. Also, many people would say that revenge, an eye for an eye, it's, it's barbaric at best. But not nearly as many people are bothered when somebody is unwilling to offer forgiveness. So in this section of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is addressing the heart sins, here it is, that fuel these outward bigger sins. And he's saying, you might think that that's a big problem, and it is, but it comes from these heart issues that have not been addressed. So to illustrate this point, Jesus describes a situation where one believer is bringing an offering to the altar to make things right between he and God. And when he gets to the altar, he remembers that things are not right between he and another believer. And Jesus tells him in verse number 24, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. In other words, reconciliation takes precedence over our religious actions. It is that one phrase, though, this morning, be reconciled, that has our full attention. It's this one phrase out of this particular section that is also one that is very difficult to fully get our mind around because the phrase is very generalized. In fact, this one phrase, be reconciled, is only found in this one place in your entire New Testament. There's other words for reconciliation, but it's not this word for reconciliation. So listen to what this big definition of reconciliation or being reconciled is. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Here's what it means. Reunite. That's it. Now, you might look at this and say, well, 
We need a little bit of context. Like, there's got to be more to this. Well, a little bit can come out just based on the context, and that is it refers to reuniting or reconciling or removal of tension, the restoration of a relationship or the resolution of conflict. So let's say you have two friends that they get into an argument, they get into a fight, and things are said or things are done, and it drives a wedge into that relationship. And now they don't talk to each other like they used to because it's awkward to talk to each other. And as they sit in silence because it's uncomfortable to talk, it allows there to be time to work into the equation. And over time, bitterness, things left unsaid, resentment begins to work into that relationship. And that person is sitting there, and many times they don't even notice what is happening. But over time, you find that two individuals are passively transitioning from friends to enemies. The question is, Can you remove the tension? Can you reconcile the relationship? What can you do to actually resolve the conflict? That's why reconciliation is absolutely important. And here's some wonderful news. God provides a path, and he also provides the incentive for reconciliation. So let's talk about the incentive quickly, because this is going to be the fast one. That is, a Christian's primary incentive to reconcile is that we are recipients of great reconciliation. We know the blessing of reconciliation. We know the benefits of reconciliation, because according to Scripture, Jesus has reconciled us to God. Our sins had separated us from God. And Romans 5.10 says, For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? As recipients of great reconciliation, we know better than anyone the joy and the blessing and the peace that comes from being rightly related to someone else. As a Christian, that's now a part of what we are to extend to others. How can we be rightly related to those that are around us? Now that leads us into what is the path of reconciliation. This is your big truth for this morning. The path of reconciliation is paved through prayer and humble acts of submission. The path of reconciliation is paved through prayer and humble acts of submission. If it sounds like a difficult path, it's because it's a difficult process. Reconciliation is not easy. Reconciliation is not fast. In fact, reconciliation is not even guaranteed. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19 says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. When someone is upset, when feelings have been hurt, when things have been said or done, when, when there are emotions coursing through that person's body, you can't just snap your finger and magically make it all disappear. Reconciliation takes time. It takes prayer, and it comes through humble acts of submission. It's in that process that both parties need to answer what is true, what is right, what is next, and what is best. 
It's in that process that people have to move from perception to reality, from hurt feelings to now extending grace. Both parties have to want reconciliation. Both parties have to be committed to reconciliation. Repentance has to happen. Forgiveness has to be extended. It's not easy. Anyone who will tell you it's easy has first either never walked through the process with another believer or they have greatly misunderstood what scripture says about reconciliation it's hard that's why people don't do it if it were easy everybody would just be reconciling with everybody around them i wouldn't even have to do the message series it's because it's hard that people say i'm not willing to get into that now before we unpack this key truth i want to clear up a common misconception about forgiveness and reconciliation Forgiveness is to pardon someone to release them from a debt or to cancel an obligation. Reconciliation is the restoration of the friendship or the resolution of the conflict. Forgiveness removes the debt. Reconciliation mends the relationship. You can forgive someone who doesn't want to reconcile, but you can't reconcile with someone who is unwilling to forgive. Your forgiveness has to be a part of that reconciliation process. So the path of reconciliation, here's our big truth, the path of reconciliation, the path of moving towards a reconciled relationship, it is paved through prayer. Let's camp out there for just a moment. Prayer changes things. No question about it. James chapter 5, verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. If you don't know what to say to that person, or if you don't even know where to begin in that situation, or if you don't know how they're going to receive that talk, or if you're afraid that you don't even have a clear picture of what the big problem is, take it to God in prayer. Take it to Him in prayer. It starts in prayer. It proceeds in prayer. It ends in prayer. It's through prayer that God addresses issues in us before we ever attempt to address issues in someone else. It's through prayer that God calms us and he convicts us and he leads us. According to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. This is a great opportunity to pray. So it has to be a process that comes through prayer. If there's any hope of true reconciliation, it will come on the wings of fervent prayer. Here's the next part of that statement, though. The path of reconciliation is paved through prayer and humble acts of submission. I could preach a month of Sundays on what humble acts of submission might look like in the process of reconciliation because it could be a lot of different things but just kind of think of it like this humble acts of submission is that you are submitting to whatever God wants to do in this process did you know that's not easy because one we don't even want to be in the process to begin with we could find a gazillion other things we would rather be doing than the hard work of reconciling with someone. And then to have to submit to God all along the way in humble acts of submission, it's not fun. So let's just kind of frame that out. Let's, let's frame out what is not fun. 
That makes for an interesting message on a Sunday morning. Let's talk about what's not fun this morning. So here's one of those things. It's not fun. It's when you have to come to the place in the prayer that you're saying, it's not my will, but his will. In the greatest act of reconciliation that the world has ever seen, it is when Jesus prayerfully prayed in the garden prior to his arrest, prior to the cross, prior to his death, and he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Ultimately, it's not what is my will. Ultimately, it's what is God's will in that situation. All too often, our will is selfishly aligned with what is convenient and what is easy and what is comfortable. But what happens if God says, I'm going to take you completely outside of that? Are you willing to humbly submit to God? Here's another one. It's not my way, but his way. You might want to tell that person off. You might want to get everything off your chest. You've been holding back a couple of verbal jabs that you've been thinking about for a while, and you're thinking, next time I talk to them, they are going to get both barrels. You might even say in that moment, I am going to do what I want to do. I can ask forgiveness of Jesus later. Did you know that's often what led to the conflict to begin with? Is people just doing what they wanted to do, hoping that they could reconcile things after it's done. Scripture tells us God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. In our flesh, we will say anything, we will do anything, we will hurt anyone to prove our points. The issue is, it's not about my way. It's about his way. Are we willing to lay aside our way in order to submit to his? Here's the next one. It's not what I want, but what he wants. You might not even want to talk to that person. You might want nothing to do with that person. You might not want to relive those memories or relive those words or relive what happened. I understand. I don't either. But here's the statement. Here's a question. What if God is more glorified through our submission than he is in our stubbornness? What if God wants to paint grace on the canvas of our conflict? Who are we to say, no, God, I'm not up for that. No, do that somewhere else. If our lives, a part of what it means to know him and be rightly related to God, if a part of our lives is that it is through us and what he's doing here that he is glorified, it is a reflection of what he's doing in our lives, what happens when we say, God, I'm not willing to engage in that. I would rather it be that I don't talk to them. I would rather avoid them. I would rather not even be involved in this whole thing. What if God's saying, that's not my path for you? Did you know it's sometimes in the process of reconciliation that God wants to confront sin in our life? He wants to expose character problems in our life. He wants to show relational patterns in our life. He wants to address anything, listen to this, that would get in the way of him fully living his life through us. Could it be that that awkward messed up situation 
is what God is going to perfectly use to remove those pieces of self that keep getting in the way of him living his life through you. What happens when we say, I don't want anything to do with that? Not only do we not experience reconciliation, we miss the blessing of what God's wanting to do in our lives. Here's the next one. Another thing that's not fun. It's not my words, but his words. Can I tell you, it takes the restraining grace of God not to say everything you want to say in that moment. And if you can think fast on your feet, and if you can expose the inconsistencies, and if you can take a couple of good verbal jabs because you've already been thinking about it for a while, and you're like, if I get an opportunity, they are going to hear about it. Okay, in that moment, you want to tell them everything. But did you know when you're humbly submitting to God, many times, here's what God will say. Be silent. Be silent. Listen to just what Solomon said about this. Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you go in with both barrels blazing, you could be stirring anger. If you listen to scripture, though, it is a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 10, 19, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. <laughs> I mean, how much more clear can it be than that? Proverbs 12, 16, a fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Proverbs 12, 18, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Proverbs 13, 3, those who control their tongue will have long life. Opening your mouth can ruin everything. Did, did you get that? If you think it's bad now, just keep talking. It often goes from bad to worse. Here's the next one. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28. A truly wise person uses few words. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. Proverbs 18, 2. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. Proverbs 18, 6 and 7. Fools' words get them into constant quarrels. The mouths of fools are their ruin. Proverbs 18, 13. Spouting off before listening to the fact is both shameful and foolish. If there is one thing that you can do to blow up the reconciliation process, is just keep talking. Amen. He's saying, be quiet. Stop it. Just don't say anything else. Oh, but they said this. It, it doesn't matter what they said. God will deal with them on that. I can tell you from personal experience, you cannot be a Baptist pastor and not take a couple of darts along the way. Let me tell you from personal experience, you will never feel dirtier than when you're trying to defend yourself. Walk righteously and let God defend you. The truth will come out. When God prompts you to say something, he will also give you the grace to say it well.
Until then, be silent. Here's what Scripture tells us, Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.28, it tells us, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building up of the one in need and bringing grace to those who listen. Colossians 4.6 tells us, Let your speech always, always, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Jerry Vines, former pastor at First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida, gave this statement. Christians never have the right to be unkind. The path of reconciliation is paved in prayer and in humble acts of submission. And these humble acts of submission could be so varied. It might be that God's saying, submit your mind to me. Submit your heart in this. Submit your attitude. Submit your time. Submit your pain. Submit your comfort. Submit your rights. Submit whatever it is that's standing in the way of you doing what God wants to do in that moment. The path of reconciliation is paved through prayer and humble acts of submission. Did you know you could do everything exactly as Scripture says, and reconciliation is not guaranteed? There's at least three ways that Scripture would say forgiveness and reconciliation can possibly be worked out. Here's the first. Full forgiveness plus full reconciliation. That's optimal. That's best case scenario. That is, a relationship has been divided. Things were biblically addressed in a redemptive manner. Full forgiveness takes place. The tension is removed. And the relationship is fully reconciled. That is wonderful. Those are incredible moments. But there's also another stage in this. Full forgiveness plus partial reconciliation. It is possible for two people to fully forgive each other do their best to reconcile, and still have the wisdom of knowing that the relationship may never return to what it once was. The reason is because relationships deepen and they grow on the cumulative impact of time, conversations, experiences, love, trust, respect, shared interest, and other things. When a relationship is broken, it is going to be reconciled along those same lines. Let me explain what I mean. Our words can either help build a relationship or our words can help destroy a relationship. Once the words come out, please hear me, you can never get them back. It's like squeezing toothpaste out of a tube. Once it's out, it's not going back in. And that other person can say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it, I, I was upset in the moment, but, and I understand, and they could be forgiven, but listen, once the words come out, those words can be ringing in that person's ears for years and years and years to come, and more especially if those words were a pattern of abusive speech. You know, one time you're like, man, it was a bad moment. But when it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again, all of a sudden those words just begin to build up in that person's spirits. The same is true of trust. 
When someone does what they say and they prove themselves to be trustworthy and they act in an honorable way, trust is built in the relationship. But when trust has been broken, it doesn't come back immediately, if ever. For trust to be reestablished, it takes honesty and transparency. It takes full repentance of sins. It takes time to see if true change has actually happened. And any misstep that happens along the way resets the clock of trust. When trust has been broken, reconciliation can be a long process. And that person cannot tell you, you just need to trust me and get over this. That doesn't help anything. Trust isn't formed that way, and it's not rebuilt that way. The same is true of respect. When respect has been lost, you see the other person differently. It's not good, it's not bad, it just is. It's it's when you know things in that relationship that you never knew before, that knowledge now changes the dynamics of the relationship. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Let's say, for example, your financial advisor steals your money. You need to forgive them, but you probably want to pick another financial advisor. That relationship's never going to look the same. Because anything that happens, you'll be like, are you sure? Can I get some reference? Can I get some verification? I mean, you just don't see the relationship the same. If your best friend hits on your spouse... Mm -mm. you need to forgive them. But I wouldn't go on vacation with them next year. (laughs) The, The issue here is Scripture tells us that part of walking in wisdom is that there are certain boundaries in relationships. And sometimes it is the process of reconciliation that puts more boundaries or clearer boundaries in the relationship. And it's not that you've not fully forgiven the person. It's just that that relationship may never go back to where it was before. That's why we don't just act however we want in the moment and just say, I'll ask forgiveness later. Because you can ask forgiveness. You can go through that. It doesn't mean everything goes back to how it once was. Here's the last one. There can be full forgiveness with no reconciliation. Notice on every single one of these, full forgiveness, full forgiveness, full forgiveness. Forgiveness is always required by God. Reconciliation, however, is something that only happens when both parties are equally invested in the same thing happening. It could be that God's working on one right now and saying, get it reconciled. And the other was like, nope, I'm all right. Did you know until those things align, there's not even a possibility of reconciliation happening? So here's a couple of scenarios where it could be full forgiveness with no reconciliation. Consider a person who has been raped or robbed by a stranger. The Bible would say forgiveness needs to happen. But there was no relationship to reconcile. Another one would be a person who refuses to repent of their sin. We are told to forgive that person. But Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Titus 3, and 2 Thessalonians 3 tell us 
keep our distance from that person until repentance happens. Scripture tells us in those texts, do not associate with that person. Do not be around that person. Have nothing to do with that person until repentance occurs. And that unrepented offender may resist any need you have to see repentance in their life. They might even get upset and try to manipulate you with words like, if you were really a Christian, you would forgive me and just let this thing go. Or I thought Christians were supposed to be compassionate and loving. Listen, forgiveness can occur without their repentance. But reconciliation requires repentance before you can move forward. So how do you know if the person is actually repentant? In your notes, here's at least six indicators of true repentance. First, the person accepts full responsibility for his or her actions. They don't say things like, since you think I've done something wrong, I guess I'm sorry. Or, if I've done anything to offend you, I'm sorry. No, it's not one of those blanket, let's just kind of put something out there so we can move on and get back to a level of comfort. Relationships that have been divided need to be addressed specifically in the type of sin that divided the relationship. The next is, the person no longer is defensive about being in the wrong. They just own it. They're not trying to hide it. They just say, you're absolutely right. Number three, the person welcomes accountability. They do not resent the other person's need to see change. Number four, the person does not try to downplay the hurtful behavior. They don't say things like, Oh, but remember what you did. Okay, yeah, you can remember both sides. The issue is you can't change the other person, but will we own what we've done? Number five, the person does not continue in the hurtful behavior or wants anything to do with it. They get away from those things. And number six, the person makes restitution where necessary. Now remember, only God fully knows the heart. But Jesus did tell us that we're to inspect the fruit. He says in Matthew 7, 16, by their fruit, you will know them. We're called to love people. We're called to forgive people. And as much as within us, we are called to be at peace with all people. But if you attempt to reconcile with someone who is continuing in abusive, sinful, or unrepentant behavior, please hear me. You're going against scriptural teaching. You're putting yourself in harm's way. And you are not loving that other person well. You can hug someone straight to hell. It's not about in that moment, how do I make them feel better faster? The issue is, Will you submit to God so that he can do his full work through them and in them and around them? That's a part of why we dealt with areas of, of confrontation where sometimes scripture says you need to back up. When they remove themselves from the body, when, when sin is going on in an unrepentant manner, it says back up. And the reason is because God is wanting that person to be left alone with their sin and with their shame so that they understand the full impact 
of what they've done. They understand that their sin has been divisive and it destroys and it hurts everyone around. And the further they dial it back and people are not feeding in comfort into this, the further that person walks back, all of a sudden they're just left with themselves and God. And it's in those moments that God's like, are you happy? Is this what you want? Are you willing to listen now? Are you willing to deal with the things you've not been willing to deal with before? One of the hardest things you, will, you and I will ever have to do in reconciliation is to get out of God's way and just let him do his thing. God can do more in a moment of clarity with that person than you and I ever could trying to make them feel better. But getting to that point is hard. The journey may be hard. You might not want to be involved in any of it. I fully understand. There are going to be days when you got to sit there and you think only God knows what's truly happened here. And it's in those moments when you're processing things between you and God that you're thinking to yourself, God, keep me, protect me from saying or doing something now because I want to feel better about what I've done to help get things to where they are. Sometimes when you're at that point in reconciliation, you're like, man, everything I've done Someone needs to see this other than just me and God. It's like you're looking for a merit badge from someone. Can I tell you, God had never given me one yet. I don't think he plans to start. Because you know the reason why I would want others to see that? For selfish pride. The question is, will you die to self so that you can love and serve someone else well? And that might be that only you and God ever know what's happened. You're like, man, that sounds hard. It is. That's why I said the path to reconciliation is paved through prayer and humble acts of submission. So what do you do if that relationship's been blown up? Forgive. What if you still need to say something? Confront, but confront in the area Scripture says to confront in. What if that only leads to more tension? Have a desire to reconcile, but recognize it's going to be a path paved in prayer and in a lot, I do mean a lot, of humble acts of submission. The reason reconciliation doesn't happen that often is not because God does not make a way. It's not because God does not desire it. It is because the process is hard and we would rather do something easier. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I think, I've got a lot of friends. Do I really need that one? <laughs> there are certain things that just come out in sermons. And just know, I'm preaching seven times between today and tomorrow. By that seventh time, I don't know what's going to come out in that message. I'm just, I'm trying to be honest with you. I'm trying to let you know, I have not arrived. 
It's not like I've always done this right or I'm always doing it right, but I at least see here's what God wants. And even when I don't want it, my prayer is, God, help me to want what you want in this situation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, God, that you would give us a heart and a desire to do what is not comfortable, it's not fun, it is not easy, but it is right. And Lord, we pray that there would be those times we're sitting with you and you are helping us process and you are reframing that situation in our minds so that we actually understand what is truth from perception. God, that we recognize the reason we would want to do this is because we have been the recipients of full forgiveness and full reconciliation. And we get an opportunity to allow you to live that type of truth through us. God, may we be about the process. In Jesus' name, amen.